Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, and Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your body around your word. Father, I pray that is indeed what we will be about today. Father, let us look at your word and understand what it is that you have for us. And Father, what it is that you would have us pursue with our life. Uh, you have given us so much. You know, we lack nothing. Father, help us see that is the truth. Let us pursue you with what your word tells us to. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's uh, sermon in Proverbs is on wealth as worship. Wealth is worship. Uh, this is, as many texts that we preach, uh, something I don't necessarily feel like the authority on, uh, but that is okay because we're coming from the scriptures on this. Wealth is tricky. Uh, one of the things that we have to start with today is defining what that word means. What is wealth? What is wealth? Wealth is tricky business. It seems to always be coming and going. We have it and don't realize it one season. And in the next, we miss it and long for it. For some, we're paycheck to paycheck. And for others, they worry about a two-point dip in their preferred index. Taxes, recessions, markets, mortgages, interest rates, bills, debts, repairs, insurance, savings, stocks, bonds, investments, college, Vehicles, vacations, toys, commodities. Things can consume an entire life, day in and day out. Yet Job tells us, and naked I will return, right? Proverbs 11.4 tells us that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You see, the danger of Christians is that they can live out their days serving their money when they can take absolutely none of it with them. The very real danger that we face. Yet in that list that I gave us, it's probably top of mind in many days of the week, these various concerns. But of course, on the other hand, the danger of Christians living out their days floundering with no money and destitute is very real as well. And so, what's it going to take to balance, to work through those things? It's funny that you should ask. Wisdom. Wisdom. We have to use wisdom in these things. There's no absolute that I can give you today except that when you die, you take nothing with you. As we deal with wealth today, we've only so far just talked about money right? As if to say that wealth is only money, but that's, that's not it. Even though that's all I've outlined, what other things fit into this category of wealth? And how do the scriptures speak of this massive component of our lives on earth? Is it something we're to give all of ourselves to? Or is it something that we're supposed to give none of ourselves to? How much is appropriate? How much wealth do I need? How much wealth should I not have? What do I do with it if I have it? What do I do if I don't have it? There's a lot of questions that fall into this. And as we know, the Proverbs does not necessarily give us absolutes in these things. But what we need to see as we cover much of the Scriptures today, 
is how the Proverbs lends wisdom <clears throat> to understanding what we are to be about. That's the better question. So let's keep defining and work through and understand uh, what we mean when we talk about wealth from the scriptures. So first, wealth is money or means. Wealth is money or means. Let's, let's first understand wealth as these two things. It's what we all think of first and is often the most tangible aspect of our wealth. <coughs> when we think about wealth, we typically think of money first. And if you were to ask someone what does it mean to be wealthy in our culture, the cultural standard of respectability when it comes to your finances is something like this picture. You pay your taxes, you finish out your mortgage, you invest in retirement, you have your emergency fund, you have no debt, and then you spend all your money on yourselves as you travel the world and enjoy your retirement, leaving little to nothing for your children or grandchildren. They can learn to earn a buck themselves. Nothing is free. This is considered blessing, right? It's the good life. That has been the prevailing story for much of American life, particularly at least over the past uh, 50 to 100 years. <coughs> On the other hand, if you live paycheck to paycheck, you have multiple repeating 30-year mortgages or only just rent, if you have little to no retirement, no emergency fund, lots of credit card debt, school debt, and you have to work a little bit longer before retirement, have an extra job here and there along the way, and have nothing to leave, then this is considered curse, or not the good life. And on the face of it, it can be simple to make such judgments on both of those pictures. But the scriptures leave much to be decided, even in those two portraits. We need to, as in all things, understand the heart of the matter. The heart has a lot to say about the results, the beginnings, and the ends of those two portraits. What does it mean? Could it be for that the first person, the one that is perceived to be blessed, is actually cursed in that? Could it be that the second one might actually be blessed? So let's start at the top, in the Old Testament specifically. When we look at the Scriptures, the Old Testament in the, Old, in the Old Testament, specifically and often, proves finances and prosperity to be a sign of God's blessing. We look at Job, we look at Abraham, we look at Jacob, we look at David and Solomon, and they were all described by their wealth, what they had, their physical property. The Bible gives their portfolios to us. You can go and you can find them. It's just, it's measured in cows and goats and and servants and stuff, right? Rather than in bear or bull markets, right? But understand that when we talk about wealth, we're saying, what does the whole Bible have to say about this thing? Proverbs is giving us wisdom on how to process it and understand the targets, but, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? So we, we understand that through progressive revelation, when we start at the beginning, we're asking the question, what is God doing? What is the story of what God is doing in the Scriptures and so in this particular case, what he's doing is that he has promised to Abraham to multiply his name, right? To establish a people or a nation for his namesake, right? That's the goal. That's what he promises. That's, that's the aim for Abraham and then his posterity. But then ultimately in Solomon particularly, you have then what? The greatest nation on the planet. At the center of the crossroads of trade, and you have people from all over coming to pay tribute to King Solomon. Absolutely wealthy, absolutely powerful. That was the goal, right? <laughs> the people under God's rule, in God's place, right? And that was often pointed back to as the great blessing. But prosperity then was not just provision, right? It's not just to make sure that Abraham and his family had enough so that they could have some kids or that, that uh, Jacob would, would, would be able to provide enough so that he could have 12, right? So that he could have all of his sons. And not just that David could kind of like field an army. It was more than just provision. It was most certainly proof. Proof of blessing to the ancient world. A proof of honor, 
a proof of the power of God to the nations. It was through his blessing to Israel that they knew that he was the most powerful God. And so we read the Old Testament and the Proverbs and we understand that that is the goal and the point. But what you see in the Proverbs, though, is a shift of goal in some places. And understanding that this wealth has this developing point to point to the giver, not to the earner. You see, the goal was never to say, look how great Solomon is. It was to say, look how great Yahweh is. The point was never to say, look how great Abraham is. It's look how great Yahweh is. He has made this people. He is God and King. And so the Proverbs begin to show us that there's a, a goal, not just that there is a God or that there's blessing, but that He is supreme. And on top of that, it begins to point to a greater function of the wealth, not just what does it, what is it, and who is it for, but what do we do with it? It goes from proving the greatness of God to then funding the people and the kingdom of God. God has already become king over all in Jesus Christ, right? Whether you admit it or not, right now, today, he is the king of this planet. Everything belongs to him. And so for us, it's not a matter of saying, well, our nation is the best. Our God is the best. Jesus has already accomplished that. He is king. All must swear fealty to him. And so for now, it's not a matter of proving that that's the case. It's a matter of empowering and functioning in a way that the people of the kingdom can do something with it. It's funding the people, the kingdom of God. And so we find that means, M-E-A-N-S, means becomes the more important focus, particularly for the New Testament believer. We see in Hebrew that the word for wealth often has a connotation of strength. If you have wealth, it means you have means. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily always important. It can carry that. It can be status. But what the scriptures seem to be interested in is the fact that when you have this, when Abraham had all of this, he had means. You see, when Lot chose the poor portion and suffered ruin, he found that he had no means. And then ultimately through sin, his line becomes enemies of Israel. But Abraham, who was faithful and took the, the poorer portion in appearance, but the godly portion, you find him growing in strength and means and ability to do something with what he has. So Proverbs 11, 24-25 says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. You see, the, the Proverbs in chapter 11 tell us to give away and find that we are continually filled. This wealth, these means, these things that you have, you give freely of them, and you would expect that that person would grow what? Poor. But it says that they grow all the richer. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched themselves. The one who waters will himself be watered. Wealth becomes about means, what we do with it. You see, with some of these principles specifically in the Proverbs, when it comes to diligence, right? It, diligence often ends in this favorable position of having means. Not for yourself, right? But to give freely and find that you are continuously filled. To water others and find that you are watered. The diligent person finds themselves in this favorable position, whereas laziness or poor stewardship leads to struggle and to calamity. For instance, Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10.15, a few verses later, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. They're defenseless. They have no means. So, if we can approach then today the idea of wealth as worship and then define wealth as being means, I, I hope already it's become very easy to see how this can be put to use. How it actually becomes a method of worship and not of self-promotion. So, that's dealing with wealth when it comes to money, right? Let's not talk about that anymore. Let's talk about other ways of wealth. 
Wealth is so much more than just our actual finances. Wealth is spiritual riches, is what I want you to see next. Wealth is so much more than our money. The Lord has bestowed many other riches to his people. Let's take a look at a few in a moment, but let me start with this, lest you lose interest in this section, okay? Uh, normally, I would like to close with this as like the, see, this is why it's valuable, but then you'll forget everything that we talked about on how to get there to the valuable thing. So let's start with the valuable thing, all right? One of the values that I hold pretty closely in my life and, and for a while has been particularly especially because I can estimate my salary over my working lifetime as pretty drastically different than what I was aiming at in my original pursuit of veterinary medicine in high school. So I need to, I need to find a way to, to make this work for me, right? One of my principal values is asking, what can I take with me? If I'm not going to make a ton of money in ministry, not, then I'm not going to necessarily be able to accumulate a lot. And even if I did, what's the Bible tell us? Stays here, right? What can I take with me? What actually goes to the other side, if you will? So pretend for a moment that there's nothing waiting for you in heaven, okay? That, that's, that's not the biblical principle, but it's an important starting point. Pretend there's nothing waiting for you in heaven. What can you bring with you, all right? Let's talk about these things that actually go to the other side with you. I would say one of the chief ones I'm going to hold up today is children. Children. We talk about wealth and riches. Let's talk about children. Children are always displayed as blessing from the Lord. Always. While they can later become a curse to their parents through unfaithfulness, usually on, on our part as parents, they are always viewed as blessing. Children, listen, are souls. Children are souls that we take part in creating. We are imaging our creator. Souls, people, are very good, Genesis tells us, right? How amazing is it that we get to take part in the creation of a soul? Children are relationships in some of the most intimate ways that you will have, right? It is different from the one flesh union and that intimacy, but they are literally flesh of like half my flesh, right? My children have my DNA. They are flesh of my flesh. They are memories and moments and joys and sanctification <laughs> drawing you closer to Jesus that you will have for eternity. That matters. That's rich. That's valuable. I think most hopeful, the children are future brothers in Christ. Future brothers, future redeemed people joined to Christ. On earth, as you'll see then paying off in heaven, children are multipliers. They're multipliers. I, there, was, there was two, now there are four, right? Multipliers. Those four may have what? I don't know, 16 right? They make new children. They make new souls. They make new future brothers in Christ. They expand your dominion. They do actual work here, or at least they should. They do actual work here. As, as the Johnson family spreads into creation, we bring the dominion of Christ where we go. We see them expand the kingdom as they become believers in Christ. We see them then go make disciples themselves as well. That's a huge, huge value. Whereas once there was just me going to heaven. Through marriage, I have children and a blessing that is eternal. And I get to take that with me. I, didn't, well, I paid money for it, but in a different way, right? You don't buy that. Now we must value them and train them. And that's where we start to see that first aspect of wealth and money come creeping in, right? John Chrysostom from the, from the 4th century says this, We take care of our possessions for our children, but of the children themselves we take no care at all. What an absurdity this is. Form the soul of your son aright, and all the rest will be added afterward. If that is not good, he will derive no advantage from his wealth. 
And if it is formed to goodness, he will suffer no harm from poverty. You want to leave him rich? Teach him to be good. For so he will be able to acquire wealth. Or if not, he will not fare worse than those who possess it. But if he is wicked, though you leave him boundless wealth, you leave him no one to take care of it. And you render him worse than those who are reduced to extreme poverty. The value of the soul, the righteousness before God and your children. Let's jump to a different avenue. Let's talk about your intellect. You are going to take your brain with you. All right? It's going. You're going to have a new brain, right? But you're going to take you into eternity. You're going to be you. So what if, and again, I doubt this is, I know it's not true. When you die, you go to heaven only with what you know. And you live the rest of eternity with what you know now. Would you be satisfied for eternity with what you have come to know as you reflect and think about what you know without learning anything else new? How long is eternity going to be? All right? Eternal. Good. All right. But Pastor Russ, look. It doesn't matter. We're going to learn so much in heaven. All right? I know. I hear you. I agree. But what does that cause you to do with your investment now? What are you going to do now? Today? In the next 30 years? If our means are about expanding the kingdom, how are you investing here? Expand the kingdom. Proverbs 24, 3-6. By wisdom, a house is built... And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. You see how the intellect, and we talked about before we started Proverbs, that other part of our body, right? bears great witness to our relationship with Christ and how we walk around this planet as Christians. It's wisdom that a house is built by. It's by understanding that it is established, that it finds roots, that it's held together. It's by knowledge that the rooms are filled with what? Precious and pleasant riches. A wise man's full of strength. A man of knowledge enhances his might. His his knowledge makes him stronger, powerful. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war in an abundance of counselors. There's victory. So, for me, I want to know everything I can about this world and what God has done and is doing. I want to know the story, history of the race of men. Heck, I even know the history of elves and dwarves, right? And they're not real at least that we're aware of. I want to know history. I want to know what God has done. I want to see how he's been at work in different times with different people. I want to know everything I can about how this world was made. Nature, technology, philosophy, the way people think and the way people act. The things I never imagined being interested in, I've become interested in as an adult. I mean, if you had told 14-year-old Rusty that one day you'd be able to identify common hardwoods by smell... I would have never talked to you again. (laughs) But I can. I I can tell the difference between red and white oak without looking at it. And God made that, right? God made that. They each have amazing properties. Red oak is is cheaper, and you can always stain it to make it look better. Almost all the wood in this place is red oak. White oak, on the other hand, well, makes bourbon. Another glory to God, right? So, I mean, these properties of this material that for the better part of my life I never paid attention to created, crafted, unique properties, special. By God, he made these things. Understanding how grain and wood works from from the way it looks, its aesthetics, to its strength and the way that you want it to run, to how different metals respond on the anvil or cooling and hardening in water versus oil. How muscle fibers respond to heavy weight or versus light weight. How different beans respond to different levels of heat or what flavors are hidden inside in coffee. To how schemes work in different versions of sports ball. 
to how cast iron releases the food once the Maillard reaction occurs in your food. And most recently, to how bunnies shed wool that can be spun into yarn. These things God has made, and we can explore God's great world. He made it all. And that's just history and exploration, let alone to speak of the eternal value and stakes of knowing the Word of God. What if you took only what you have to heaven? Understand the riches of what God has made and given us. It is certainly wealth, because all of this is used to expand the kingdom. Means by which we explain, proclaim, and display the glory of our king. Scientists so often release studies that never believe this. This thing was created in this way so that it works this way. And I'm like, yes, it's called intelligent design. Our king made that. That's why it has that property. It's no surprise to the Christian. So, we talk about intellect, we talk about children, another avenue of wealth. Talents, your talents. Talents are gifts from God. Riches that are to be developed into real wealth. Now, this can definitely fall many of these things into the exploring that I just mentioned. But while I like to explore World War I and II and the Peloponnesian Wars, I'm not talented at them, right? It's, it's an interest versus a talent. But you think about talents, and I would say like our musicians, right? They bring a wealth to refuge. It is a value, a wealth that we have in our singing and the way that we worship that they bring to the table for us. Our tech people, they bring a wealth to refuge. I don't know if you heard, but at the beginning of the sermon, my voice was booming, and Kyle fixed it. Now I'm not distracted. That's a, that's a wealth. It's a blessing, right? That was his talent, his skill. Our writers, Kyle and, and Tiffany, they bring a wealth to refuge, a hidden, quiet wealth that many of us aren't aware of. It's going to be anything. I got this list from online. I'll give it to you if you want. In the arts, acting, comedy, dancing, graphic design, magic, painting, instruments, pottery, singing, woodwork, talents, and the arts. Talents in sports are the body with your balance, your coordination, your jumping, your rhythm, running, skating, swimming, throwing. All talents that can be developed. In the sports or in the body. In the academic area or in business, brainstorming, entrepreneurialism, mathematics, multilingualism, problem solving, reading, researching, storytelling, strategic thinking, teaching, work ethic, writing. All talents God has gifted to his people. Interpersonal skills of care for others, like hospitality, leadership, listening, public speaking, teamwork, talents, gifts, wealth God has given to his people. Personal communication, humor, intuition, money management, organization, Patience, punctuality, resilience, resourcefulness, self-reflection, staying calm, time management, talents, gifts that God has given to his people. Take these things, develop them, learn from them, master them, use them for the glory of God, for his people, and for his kingdom. I hope you can see how much more there is to you than just your bank account. I hope you see how your talent is not just a means to a paycheck either. You see, wealth for the Christian goes well beyond our finances. It certainly is a, is a crucial, critical part of it. But there's so much more that God has given us. How are we using and investing those things as well? From children to intellect to talents and so many other things. So I want you to see now wealth is blessing or curse. The problem is, is that we have a whole lot more than we think we do, and we want a whole lot more than we actually need. And so, with the wealth that we have, is it a blessing, or is it a curse? With our current situation, because of the decisions that we've made, are we under blessing, or are we under curse? So, having hopefully a more well-rounded view of wealth, let's revisit the actual goal. 
we want to reframe that cultural success that we led with, right, and the respectability, paying your taxes, finishing your mortgage, investing in retirement, emergency fund, no debt, traveling, no inheritance, right? Could it be that that is cursed? 100%, absolutely. Happens all the time. Happens absolutely all the time. And I find it interesting, particularly in our current economy, that as these people, which is usually, this is a, a very much a, a boomer mentality, right? We see this all over the place in our culture, that as they're now coming into retirement age, they're hit with this curse of a recession. It's being taken away from them. Should that be new to the Christian? No. Luke 12, 19 to 21. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said this, Solomon got more hurt by his wealth than he got good by his wisdom. Such a fire rose out of his worldly enjoyments as did even consume and burn up his choicest spirits and his noblest virtues. Under all his royal robes, he had but a threadbare soul. Wealth is to be used for the glory of God. All of life is for this purpose. From our finances to our children and families to our talents and abilities to our interests, our, our enjoyment, our pleasures are at the mercies of God. All of life is for that purpose. And it becomes so much clearer when we recognize that it is all His in the first place. There's nothing we have that did not come from His hand. And there's nothing we need that He has withheld. If we use it for ourselves, we will find it blown away. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 6-9. to It says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Sound like you're familiar with that? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You see, when they came back from exile, they began building their own homes and establishing their own treasures and securities again. And meanwhile, the house of God lay in ruins. And as they continue to try to sow and collect for themselves and bring home, they find that their money just disappears. It's in a bag full of holes. When they brought it home, he says, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins and you are too worried about your own things. I don't intend to put any guilt trip. This building is definitely not in ruins, okay? Um, it's a little rough around the edges, but it's not in ruins, okay? What we're talking about is the mission, right? The kingdom mission. If you find often that your hole, or your bag has holes in it, that your finances are being blown away, ask yourselves, why? Are you about the mission of God? Because until then, he's your adversary. Why? As we find from Malachi, because you've robbed him. Because you're withholding what is actually his in the first place. All of it is. And so you find yourself cursed. This is curse. You have all the money in the world and it'll keep blowing away. And we find people in our culture that have all the money in the world and nothing happens with it. Nothing good happens with it. What value is it actually? What comfort is it actually? They all end up hating it. But they can't be without it. Charles Spurgeon says this, 
says, are there not many men who would have been lost themselves if they had not lost their all? I talked with one the other day who said to me, I never saw until I lost my eyes. Another said to me as I noticed that he had lost a leg, it was the loss of that leg that made me think and brought me to my Savior's feet. Some of you cannot go to heaven with all your possessions and with all your prosperity. It will be necessary to have these things cut away. You are like a ship that is going down through overloading. And you will have to be unloaded so that you may float. And blessed is that hand of God that does unload you of many an earthly joy, so that you may find your all in the world to come. Affliction is God's black dog that he sends after wandering sheep to bring them back to the fold. We recognize that our wealth on its own is a terrible God. As Jesus says, we cannot serve God and money. Recognize, though, that our other aspects of wealth can become curses as well. It's not just money. Your children can become curses to the parents. And the parents can become curses to their children. You see this idea of generational curse. When parents sin in some ways, it can affect a family for three to four generations. Your intellect and your hobbies can be squandered on self-serving. Francis Bacon had a nice shot across my bow on that one. Instead, wealth is meant to be used as a means of blessing. We should bring the first fruits to the storehouse, the local church. Why? Well, for one, it's the primary way by which I feed my family, so thank you. It used to be cows and goats and stuff, and frankly, in this economy, if you want to bring a cow to the storehouse, I'm okay with that, all right? That would work well for me. Um, but as it is, you, you can do your regular greenbacks. It's the primary way that we're taken care of as pastors. It's to then further the ministry of the local church, from its local missions to its local area to international missions. It is to train trust in God for, for provision, to give over a great portion of your wealth, of your means, trusting that the Lord will make up your provision, that you will be left not wanting. So outside of then the first fruits, what about the rest of it, right? You should have some sort of inheritance for your children. Let's start with there. If that's the goal, if that's what we're going to end up at, giving away the remainder of what we have when we leave. The goal is to have that for them to propel them into more dominion, more gospel kingdom building. That's the goal, right? That it doesn't just, well, that was a good race. I ran it, I'm over, and hopefully my family does okay. But to leave my children in such a way to propel them and my influence then, right, even after I die, into more dominion, into more gospel kingdom building. Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Sinner's wealth will be taken from them and given to the righteous. But a good man leaves an inheritance not just to his children, but to his grandchildren. So, what are some ways that we can do this? What does it look like? There are so many. Let's tackle a few of them. Start businesses. Start businesses, men. Take godly, good risks and be willing to do so and start businesses. Why? You'll bring God's Christian dominion to our world. Your values, the Bible's values, to this world. You'll employ people. You will give people jobs so that they can feed their family. Help other people start businesses. Invest. And if you do or don't, other people, be willing to be a safety net. If we want our brothers to take risks in starting businesses, it's risky. Be there to be a safety net. Have all things in common as the people in Acts did. So that they know if they take a risk or even if they make a mistake that the church body is there to take care of them. Their family will be okay. Contribute to the needs of the saints in general. Right? Caring for the needy. And in order to do this, you have to foster and practice eyes to see it. I don't know that this is any particular sin on anyone, but it's a good example I think from my life uh, to at least show the eyes component of it. Right? Early and our church planting at renovation, I had some green shoes. I never thought I would wear any shoes that had any color on it. 
I had some green Adidas, and they were cool. I liked them. Uh, I wore them a lot, and they had holes in the front so that my entire toe would, like, come out the front. Um, and we did not have this hiding my shoes. There's a music stand, so you could see my toe on stage, right? The people of means there, no one noticed my shoes. No one noticed the knee that we were in, right? So we, when we first got married, we are living on $1,300 a month. I don't know how the Lord uh, did all that, right? But couldn't buy shoes whenever I wanted, and no one took care of those things. That was a need, kind of, because in other countries, at least I had shoes, right? So I don't know if there's any particular sin, but the idea of eyes matters. Are you looking? Can you see beyond your walls, your kingdom? Your wealth is a castle. We're protecting you. But can you see outside of it? Do you have eyes for other people? I can attest that many here do. I've been the recipient of many of those gifts. Give to pregnancy centers, right? Particularly in our new uh, victory, or recent victories and new age, we have to continue to give to those. Train people, children and adults for jobs. What skills do you have? What talents that I listed do you have? Pass those on. In the church, out of the church, young, old, give those away. Train them to be able to get a job, to be able to provide for themselves, to be able to contribute to others. Restore old buildings, <laughs> right? Bring fresh, new life to what is dying, just like the gospel does to our souls, right? Invest in the arts. Commission pieces of arts from people. Again, the Christian church used to be the biggest uh, commissioner investment in the arts. It needs to be that again. Our arts are awful. We need to fund missions. Imagine buying a house with two or three other couples in the church. You all pitch in together and you buy a house in the Dominican Republic. You can take your vacation there. Of course, do that. Go down there. Spend time then with the missions that we do in Haiti Love and the Dominican Republic. Provide a place for missionaries to be able to stay short-term, long-term. What can you do to be creative in this thing? Grow food for people. We have food deserts in our city. And then open a grocery. Invest with one or two or three other people in the church and buy all of the food you need from Walnut Creek in the co-op and then sell it in a grocery store. Have your kids then take over all these things. As they grow into them and as you pass away, have them take on and take over all of these things. I want one of my children to be a coffee roaster or their husband. I want one of them to enjoy woodworking or their husband and have what they need to continue to see Eden grow over all this earth. Or spend it all on fun and toys and let your kids start over. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Let's bring us home and talk about wealth as worship in the new kingdom, adversity and works. Francis Bacon says this, prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Right? There's, there's no question about that. We talked about that at the beginning. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the new, which carries the greater benediction and the clearer revelation of God's favor. We will encounter adversity in doing all those things that I just listed if you're doing it for Jesus' name's sake. You will. You'll be threatened at pregnancy centers. It's actively happening. You'll be ostracized for disdaining public education, starting our own schools. You will lose customers for not compromising on sexual ethics and marriage in the family. Sell a lot more coffee if I put a rainbow flag on my, on my logo. You will lose customers for not compromising but what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 6? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's much, much, much to say on your testament. I'm trying to keep the majority of this to the idea of the Proverbs. We have to understand that as we walk here in the New Testament, what we're promised is suffering. What we're promised is adversity. And we're to count these things joy when we encounter various trials, right? Now, it's not because life is supposed to stink. It's not just because it's going to stink. But because we're being persecuted for why we're doing it. It's not to say that we are supposed to simply live by poverty and that poverty must and always equal godliness. Many times in our culture, poverty is a result of poor decisions because of foolishness. Many times it's not. There are many Proverbs that talk about how the food would be abundant in the fields if it weren't for the, um, for the enemy of righteousness and the wicked. That the rich people plunder the fields. So there's a lot to be said both ways. What's the point? What are we after? Expanding the kingdom. And if we're expanding the kingdom, and we're expanding our king's kingdom. And as you do that, you find this adversity. You'll be cursed because of my namesake, Jesus tells us. Right? All of these different things, we see that adversity comes with doing these things for the name of Jesus. But, what does he promise us? That if our treasure, if our heart is where our treasure is and our treasure is in heaven, then what? We are we're rich. We are rich. Why? Hopefully this isn't the first time you've heard this from me. We get God. We get God. Is He your treasure? <laughs> is He your treasure? As many different ways as we could go with wealth, as we could go with poverty, as we could go with adversity, as we could go with wisdom and foolishness and this whole thing. I think really at the end of the day it is, is God your treasure? Is God your treasure? See, Ephesians 3, 14-19, you heard it. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a wealthy person. You want to be that. You want to give your life to that. Second Corinthians 8, 8-9 I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. You want to know how to get rich? You get God. You have everything. Because He owns it all. And because you're going to spend 70, 90, 50, 30 years here, and eternity in his house. There's great righteousness and glory and great sin and danger to be had here in these 30, 50, 70, 90 years when it comes to your finances, for sure. And we can talk about that. We have a class on it. We do all. But this is what we're chasing. This is what we're chasing. And so we have this instruction from 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. What to do? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share Thus, storing up treasure for themselves 
as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the good life. That's what Proverbs has for you. We have everything we need. We have everything that we can want. You get God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for what you have given us. Your generosity knows no bounds. Father, you withhold nothing good from your people. Father, we know that every good and perfect thing comes from you, Father of lights. There's no shadow of change. Father, help us see this. Help us see what you have done in Jesus. Help us see that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. No hope, no future, no glory. Death and darkness for the rest of eternity. And not by any standing of ours, not by any wealth we possess, not by any good decisions that we made, while we were enemies of you, while we were actively resisting you, you came and died for us. You gave up your riches, you put on flesh, and your poverty became our riches. Father, thank you. Thank you for that. Help us see that. Help us see what the good life really is. Help us see the riches that you have already poured all over us. They're everywhere in our life. Let us not disdain the talents that you've given us, the gifts that you've given us, the children that you've given us, the mind that you've given us, the body that you've given us, the time and history that you've given us. Father, we are immensely blessed and in this nation above all. Let us not squander it. Let us not, not... Let's not curse you for us not having what we don't, for not having what we want. Father, you've given us all we need and more. Let us treasure you and your son. Help us see this in the word. Help our hearts hold and cling to it. That is the good life. Father, we love you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.